Welcome to Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast. This is episode four, Friction, an interview with Anna Tsing, by Corinna Howland, Christina Woolner, and Sean Lazar. Often we think the world is created through a series of logics that then form singular histories going one place. I'd like to offer an alternative in which rather than internal logics and efficiencies creating a single history that each moment our future chances are recreated by the kinds of things that come together, creating new trajectories which then in turn might also be subject to contingencies. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Social Anthropology podcast series. My name is Karina Howland and I'm a PhD student in the department. When Professor Singh visited Cambridge last year, we took the opportunity to sit down with her to discuss her book, Friction, an Ethnography of Global Connection, and to find out a bit more about her thinking on issues of globalisation, scale, environmental politics, and capitalism. Professor Singh began the interview by explaining what she means by friction. Many people hear friction as meaning conflict, but that's not what I meant at all, although conflict could be part of it, that friction if you think of it coming more from physical matter, uh, refers to uh, what happens when you rub things together and they slow down (laughs) and create something new, often heat or light. And that's why I put a picture of a flame on the cover. So the kind of friction that I'm interested in is things that emerge out of stuff that comes together uh, unexpectedly. So sometimes Uh, when we see a new historical trajectory come into being and you want to trace it, rather than seeing it as coming out of an interior logic or new efficiency, I uh, began to see it as from two previous uh, historical trajectories that somehow mix it up and become something new. And of course, those trajectories themselves had that same kind of history behind them so that it is intended to be friction all the way down rather than starting with some kind of primordial essences, that friction is that process in which new emergences, including histories, get made as multiple trajectories come together, unexpectedly often. So, Professor Singh, could you tell us a little bit about the background for the book? Uh, What inspired you to write Friction? After I did the research that resulted in in the realm of Diamond Queen, some of which takes place in the same place, I wanted to follow up on some of what seemed to me the biggest insights I'd Mm -hmm. gotten in that research, but that I hadn't had a chance to really study. Um, Something that was very unexpected that came out of that research was when Marata Stajaks taught me to see the landscape in a new way. They showed me the landscape as a history of human biographies and community biographies. And I, so the original project was to go and look at that way of forming landscapes. But when I got there, a crisis was happening about the logging of the forest by uh, big multinational timber companies, and everybody wanted to talk about that. And in fact, one of the things that gave uh, shape to the research as it came out in friction was the story that I tell in one of the later chapters. It's chapter seven, the last chapter, 
where I ended up meeting a lot of people who had been at the same event, and they had really different stories to tell about what happened. And that helped me come into a structure of thinking about what my research should be about, which was, in fact, this set of uh, miscommunications and strange meetings that had created the political situation in which this area was being deforested and reclaimed in a variety of different plans that didn't seem to match up very well. That set of incidents, which I only later reconstructed as about the same incident, was very important in my imagining the trajectory of what became friction. Okay. And is that what you mean by friction, those the misunderstandings, perhaps? Well, friction can be completely unintentional. And, uh, in fact, as in that example in Chapter 7, people don't even realize that anything's happening, except they're pleased that the timber company went away, but they don't know what's going on. And so friction refers to that set of interminglings that may or may not be, in fact, probably generally aren't part of a plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're, so they're kind of in the grip of worldly encounter. Yes, yes, yes. Very cool. So you, you kind of set the book out into three sections of prosperity, knowledge, and freedom. Would you mind telling us a little about each of those concepts? Well, they all come from this concept of engaged universals that I bring up in the introduction where many, let's stick with this vocabulary of historical trajectories, many of them have uh, great aspirations, but when they come into being, they come into being in rather locally specific ways. Mm -hmm. And so those three things, prosperity, knowledge, and freedom, are examples of some of the big themes of modernity and imperialism and the kind of world history that we are wrapped up in, and yet they take on particular forms uh, in, in places. Professor Singh's work has had a significant impact on how we understand globalization. It has provided us with a richer and more complex understanding of globalization than we had previously, either in academia or in policy circles. I asked Professor Singh to elaborate on how an anthropological perspective is shifting the nature of the conversation about globalization. Well, one thing I should say is most of the time we, practitioners and non-practitioners, is that we, we think that anthropology doesn't accomplish anything. I think that's the general stereotype is that it just gets some different opinions out in the air. And when I think about what happened to the study of globalization, Mm -hmm. it's a case where anthropology maybe even discovered something, which is that even as globalization is global, it's a very patchy, uneven process that comes out in particular places very differently, and that I think back in the 1990s, people did not know that, people meaning scholars and the general public, and now it's been a long time since I've seen anybody come up with that earlier theory of globalization when uh, the projects of expansion just were able to take over the world. Mm -hmm. So I was only one small part of a movement in anthropology that I think made this intervention that actually made a difference and that we see global 
what what global things rather differently mm -hmm. as a result of the work that anthropologists have done. And how do you think we see them differently? I think we see uh, the patchiness of even the most broadly uh, sent out uh, imperial efforts mm -hmm. that when a corporation says, we have a global business, and here I'm thinking of a wonderful little article by Karen Ho and where she looked at one of those global businesses and they had offices in some very specific places and then they had some post office boxes in a few places mm -hmm. and that's what they meant by global business but it wasn't an even global business, it was some particular places with more or less work in them. So this patchy operation of global businesses relates to another concept that is important to Professor Singh's work, which is the concept of scale. And her work has been particularly influential in how anthropologists work conceptually with the different scales. How then might anthropologists deal with the issue of scale? I think that the key small insight I've had about scale is that scales interrupt each other, that you can't move from one scale to another smoothly, and that there are many technologies around us that make us forget. I think particularly digital technologies are technologies in which we imagine something small can become something big mm -hmm. seamlessly. And mm -hmm. we do it every day on our computers. We want the font to be a little bigger or a little smaller, and we just move it effortlessly, and the words say the same thing, whatever mm -hmm. scale we've adjusted it to. But when we start applying that to the world, in fact, scales interrupt each other and uh, sit badly with each other, and that's how things work, is that interruption of scale rather than that smooth sailing. There are a few cases where people have worked really hard to create that computer effect of zooming, where you mm -hmm. can make a small business into a big business or a small uh, government apparatus into a big one. But it takes a huge amount of work, and it's generally uh, at some level full of failures and mistakes. Very true. Um, and so could you give an example from friction of how those scales are interrupting each other? Well, let me just start with, uh, because I um, see it in the table of contents, mm -hmm. with the part introduction to part two, where I happened to, um, I used a photograph of a stamp that was issued in Indonesia in 1955 mm -hmm. to commemorate the Bandung Conference, and the idea of the global in 1955 had these people standing somehow outside of the globe releasing uh, doves to it and it just seemed so interesting to me that this globe is a completely different globe than what happened later with the space uh, shots of the earth and with uh, this sense of how the globe became a different thing. So mm -hmm. even when we talk about global scales, there's really a lot of them out there that aren't the same. Mm -hmm. And then when we start working with the different projects where when you ask about the mining industry became global in their own terms, in part, for example, in the case of Canadian mm -hmm. mining industry, because of regulations about environmental impacts in Canada that sent the investment capital from Canada to other countries mm -hmm. where they had less regulations. And then, in turn, they get all embroiled with what's going on at uh, national scales and at regional scales. And, of course, in the example that I give, 
in the end, they had to buy a little gold and pretend that it happened in this particular place. So, yes, that's a good example of how um, different scales can interrupt each other as well as uh, make each other seem more real. I think this is a good example of how Professor Singh's approach to globalization gives us the analytical tools to better understand the messiness that we encounter in everyday life. But of course this messiness isn't only limited to how global businesses operate. And another place we encounter this in Professor Singh's work is in her engagement with environmental activists in Indonesia. How might issues of scale, patchiness and contingencies help us to understand environmental politics? Well, one thing I should say is that at the period that I was doing the research on this book was a time when environmental activism could register at multiple political scales mm -hmm. because it was a kind of oppositional politics that the regime didn't care to cut off completely because of its ties to international science. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it was the closest that at that period people could get to human rights, to all kinds of other struggles. Mm -hmm. And so you, you got this kind of environmental activism that percolated into many, many different kinds of issues and kinds of political mobilizations. So that made it even messier, in, in the best sense of the term. Mm -hmm. It made it effective to have a small mobilization for the uh, customary rights of a particular area because that spoke to the problems with an authoritarian state, the problems with selling your country to multinational mm -hmm. capital, that many, many things came together mm -hmm. in that. And so it also meant that the, the kinds of, even the kinds of mistakes or imperial moves that environmentalists might make could still have an effectiveness mm -hmm. despite all their contradictions. I think many anthropologists starting in the 1990s wanted to, we, it, it came after, there was a romance of NGOs maybe in the 1980s and by the, or the, in the early 1990s. And then by the late 1990s, anthropologists realized that NGOs were not perfect, but that they were involved in this really messy stuff. And what happened is they got reduced some of the time to imperial logics of various sorts. And I would not want to say that those stories are untrue, that indeed imperial logics are very much part of this NGO politics. At the same time, when one considers it in a particular context, in this case, of the end of what was called the New Order in Indonesia and the struggle against authoritarian government, the local interpretations of even imperial moves could be very useful mm -hmm. uh, in uh, kind of political mobilizations that empower local people, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I felt even by the time I was writing this, working against the grain of some anthropological analyses which wanted to throw out, particularly conservationists who have been very unpopular in anthropology, mm -hmm. uh, as bringing imperial agendas into being. And that's true at the same time in particular cases um, it's also full of opportunities for this kind of friction that I'm talking about. It. I, I remember a conference I went to probably in the 1990s where people argued about this, that certainly 
uh, anthropologists working in Southern Africa in particular wanted to just see imperial agendas as part of conservation. And then we had an important activist from Indonesia was there and was talking about what the many kinds of things you could accomplish with an environmental struggle that weren't technically what gets counted mm -hmm. as conservation at all. And uh, so there was a lot of promise, even in what I've called messiness. I think this certainly gives us a better understanding of the complexity at play in this context. Now, another thing we touched on in the interview relates to Professor Singh's newer work on the unevenness of global capitalism. During the interview, Professor Singh used the terms patchiness, unevenness, and contingency to describe the way that globalization manifests differently in different places. And these same ideas appear in her more recent work on global capitalism. To me, this suggests that capitalism as a category is increasingly becoming problematic for some anthropologists. I wonder then if the concept of capitalism is still a useful analytical tool for us. I find that the concept of capitalism to be useful even though it, to me, marks a rather uneven, uh, patchy kind of political economy. Mm -hmm. So capitalism as a analytic tool remains useful to me to understand this mechanism of accumulation mm -hmm. and how the rich get rich. At the same time, when you look at capitalism in any particular place, it's strange. Mm -hmm. It's something different than what you expect. Mm -hmm. And that particularly in these frontiers that I was interested in here, you see capitalism at its strangest. Mm -hmm. um, that I, in my more recent research, have tried to look at just what capitalism might mean mm -hmm. um, in areas where most people are not governed by capitalist discipline. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, the machine of accumulation is still mm -hmm. operating. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a central piece of what we need to study now in terms of global capitalism is that even as it seems completely ubiquitous, mm -hmm. many of the people engaged in it are not in what classically was thought of as capitalist relationships at all. Mm -hmm. So, well, there's a messy engagement between capitalist disciplinary forms mm -hmm. and other things mm. that people are doing mm -hmm. in the world. And sometimes, indeed, the very uh, standardization of something like accounting and inventory can allow for even messier mm -hmm. things that are outside of that, yeah, but still filtered into the same mechanisms. And that brings this interview to a close. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget to check the website for the next installment of the Cambridge Social Anthropology podcast series.